Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> I guess I'm up. I'd like, to, uh, I'd like us to um, discuss a parable this morning. Uh, it's the parable, in fact, um, uh, the, uh, what kind of inspired me for the, the topic was the song that we had uh, sung about the 99. This is the, the, uh, the parable of the lost sheep. And what I'm going to do is I'm, uh, the lost sheep is um, <clears throat> discussed in two places in the, in the Gospels. And I'd like to read um, both of those. Let's start, can we start with Luke 15? You don't need to turn this up on the screen, and I'm just going to uh, read it. This is How many of you have heard of the parable of the lost sheep? I mean, everybody. Uh, yeah, okay. So what I'm going to do is, uh, as um, usually typical practice is, I'm going to be calling into question a typi the typical um, understanding or how that has usually been preached. So you probably have not heard this rendition uh, before. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners... Uh, we're, all, uh, we're all gathering around him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he's joyful, puts it all puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my last sheep. Okay, we've all heard that, right, story? Um, if you, uh, the one in, in Matthew, I just want to read that. That's much shorter. So this is the same parable as told by the, uh, the gospel writer of Matthew. What, uh, this is Jesus speaking. He says, What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go and look for the one that's wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about the one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little, of these little ones should be lost. Okay? <clears throat> so... There's actually two tellings of the, uh, of, of the parable here. One's in Luke and the other we just read in Matthew. Both evangelists have tweaked the parable to accentuate their point, the point that they want to make. Now, both, both stories <clears throat> are put in different contexts by the different writers. Remember, Luke and Matthew compiled their Gospels about two generations after Jesus told the story. A time in which the groups of Jesus' followers had already undergone many changes. Two generations later. With that said, I want to use Jesus' parable as a way to encourage us and challenge us this morning, hopefully. And by the way, and if you've got a bulletin, I, I, I included some what I call paper airplane material. And the reason why I call it that is <clears throat> when I was younger and my, my sons were little, um, I was asked to kind of preach on a regular basis for a little while at this really small church. And it was so small it didn't have a children's department. So I would just go, okay, boys, you're in the back there. And so they would take it. And about halfway through my ser sermon, I see them doing this. 
and this, here's one airplane going this way, and I'm, I'm, and I'm so trying to concentrate on the sermon, but they're out, they're using my um, uh, material as a paper airplane, so that's why I call it paper airplane material. When I approach the Bible <clears throat> on the things that I'm hearing, I'm sorry, on the things that I'm learning, that is the Bible, I'm learning that it's a compilation of documents that were created in a, compl a completely different cultural environment from our own. Jesus lived in Galilee in the first century, so he was part of what some scholars have termed the first century uh, Mediterranean world, right? He spoke a completely different language. He was part of a pre-industrial society, and in that society, he lived as a peasant. Jesus was a peasant. So societies can be analyzed as partly high context and partly low context. So I'm just kind of setting the framework here. A high context exchange is where one does not spell everything out, but leaves much to the listener or the reader to fill in. Low context, on the other hand, are areas that would uh, be areas of specialization like medical um, technology or information technology. Has anybody ever during Christmas had to assemble a toy in preparation for Christmas, like a bike or something like that? You know, they have these instructions. You take um, uh, screw number eight and you put it into nut number four and you know how frustrating that is. Which one's eight? You know, and it takes you half the night just to put it together but every, all the instructions are so specific. That's called a low context uh, situation. Now a high context situation uh, are areas of familiarity, like family or work or friendships. These are areas of such shared experiences and cultural commonalities that it's not necessary to explain every detail. How many of you have ever been in an intimate relationship? You know, do you have to, oh, you know, uh, do you have to get up and spell out everything? Oh, I really love you. Well, now, why do you love me? Well, it's because of your hair. Well, what about my hair? You know, it's like, really, I love you. You know why, all that stuff. Anyway, this is where the problem begins because when we as high context readers in the 20th, first century, read something from another high context culture, we add our own cultural cues, which may be quite different to complete the interpretation. That's a problem. Is this the best way to do the interpretation business? And I would say no. Since our cultural background is different, our cultural cues used to fill in, in between the lines might not be appropriate. For instance, let me give an example. There's a story of Jesus, a scene where he, um, Jesus and his disciples stop after some traveling um, the disciples had been arguing on the way about who's the greatest. You probably know the story. The dis uh, in the context, Jesus simply says, unless you change and become as the little children, blah, blah, and he goes on. Now, what have you heard about the meaning of children here? Or when you picture interpreting that, what do you, what do you picture in terms of little children? What do they represent? Modern projections include innocence, trusting, imaginative, obedient, delightful children playing at the knees of a gentle Jesus. You know, that's kind of how you kind of get that. But in the first century, childhood was actually a time of terror. Infant mortality rates sometimes reached 
30%. Another 30% of birth, live births were dead by the age of 6. And 60% were gone by the age of 16. Children were also the first to suffer from famine, war, disease, etc. In some areas, few would have lived to adulthood. For this, as well as other reasons, children actually had very little status in the first century. Thus, childhood was a time of terror, and surviving to adulthood was a cause of celebration. So in Mark 9, for instance, notice how the meaning changes when Jesus says, Whoever welcomes such a child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. What's being showcased? It's not the child's faith, nor is it the child's innocence, but rather the child's vulnerability. Okay, But that's for another sermon. That's just an example. So back to the um, parable <clears throat> that, was, uh, that we, uh, we read this morning. What's the best path to pursue in order to understand Jesus, what he's trying to communicate? We have to, we, uh, we have to do all that we can to put ourselves in the position of being sensitive hearers or readers of the story, uh, of, of being sensitive first century Mediterranean listeners. So this is, uh, and this takes a lifetime endeavor. It covers many areas, but for this morning, I'd just like to highlight a couple of areas in an attempt to put us on common ground with Jesus' audience, who he was speaking to. A key way of being a sensitive listener in the story is to understand how people were classified back then, how they classified one another, and specifically how people thought about the occupation of shepherd. Okay? Um, in the earlier... In, in the earlier grazing context, the occupation of shepherd had a very positive connotation, right? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, right? But as the years went by and Israel, and this, as hundreds of years went by, and Israel converted to an, to an agrarian economy, the perceptions that people uh, had of shepherds changed as well. Shepherds came to be viewed negatively as those who operated in marginalized areas, such as deserts and mountains. In the Hebrew scriptures, long before the time of Jesus, a shepherd was used as a positive metaphor to denote a leader who protected his flock. So God is shepherd over the flock, Israel. Yet by the first century, shepherds were disdained as marginalized members of society. In fact, shepherds were so disdained that they were among the forbidden occupations and they were equated with robbers. A Jewish source at the time says this, a man should not teach his son to be an ass driver. I, I just love to say that word in church. I'm quoting, uh, or a camel driver, or a barber, or a sailor, or a herdsman, or shepherd, or a shopkeeper, for their craft is the craft of robbers. Shepherds were classified with tax collectors and publicans. 
not trusted because they crossed boundaries intentionally so that their herds could graze in another's fields. This activity was considered stealing. Well, what do you say? What about those passages that could describe God as a shepherd, like Psalm 23? Well, by the time of Jesus, shepherd had become such a negative term that there is very few places in all of Hebrew um, literature that actually discusses Psalm 23. They actually tried to avoid it. Getting back to the text, what kind of shepherd are we talking about? So here we are. Here's the question. On the one hand, God is a divine shepherd in, 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 search, uh, in search of his flock, Israel. On the other, a shepherd is a marginal worker who is an outcast. In the religious traditions of the Jews, shepherds are not used for religious purposes that often, but in one significant passage, the prophet Ezekiel describes Israel of his day as totally corrupt. 34 says, the Son of Man prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Ho, shepherds of Israel, who have, been, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? Total condemnation of the shepherds. Now, in our passage, here God will be a good shepherd who, can, who uh, recovers his lost sheep Israel. But... The cues of the crowd listening to Jesus could conceptualize of a more negative impression. Notice the major difference in Jesus' usage is that the shepherd goes after the one and the rest are left. Now here's another question. I don't know if you've thought about this. This leads to a key question for understanding the parable. The shepherd and his flock are out in the desert, in the wilderness. Should the shepherd leave the sheep alone on the mountain while he searches for the one stray? Shepherds are out there by themselves. How you resolve the question factors in how you determine the value of the shepherd. Shepherds were among the most dangerous professions because they were expected to protect the flock from the many potential dangers inherent in a wilderness experience. Wolves and other large predators. What do you do if you were the shepherd and you lost a sheep? Do you risk the group for the one? What would you do? If you were the shepherd, what would you do? You're out in the middle of nowhere. Oh, my God. Where's little Harry? I don't know what they don't, they don't, they don't name him. I'm missing one. You know, the one with the mole on it. I don't know how you tell the difference. Anyway, so um, uh, what do you do? Now, some scholars, in order to mitigate the problem, say, oh, the, the shepherd would have left them with an extended family or left them in a cave. Uh, but the context impl implies abandonment. In fact, the word itself means to leave behind. Now, most people, so we come to the parable, most people think of the shepherd as a good shepherd. What does a good shepherd do when one is lost? Well, he retrieves the lost sheep because he doesn't want it to lose any. Okay, I get that. 
But as we've seen in the first century Mediterranean culture, the shepherd was a profession that was very, very problematic. They did whatever it took to keep their flock alive. And further, this shepherd found himself in a particularly problematic situation. One sheep is missing, and it could be anywhere. The story structure makes evident that the risk it makes evident the risk that the shepherd runs. Now, in taking such a risk to find one sheep, here's the question. Um, has the shepherd become a fool? What if while he's out looking for the one, the rest of the flock is attacked by wolves? What if the one has already been killed by wolves? Or what happens if he never, he never finds it? Luke sets this parable in the context of eating with tax collectors and sinners, welcoming those who appear beyond the reach of recovery. Are there people who you know who've been categorized as having stepped over the line? Are there situations that either you know of or you're involved in that you, would that you would classify as beyond recovery? Too much water under the bridge? Now, maybe that's the case. But here we are confronted with a parable told by Jesus, a story that because of the nature of parable can be understood on multiple levels. For instance, is Jesus telling the story as self-reflection about his own motivations? He's being pressured by the religious leaders of his day. Or is the tale that, uh, or, or, or is a tale that is meant to challenge those scribes and Pharisees who questions the company he keeps? Is it directed to the crowd of people who follow him, many without any clear reason other than he was a charismatic healer prophet? Or is it, act, is it act applicable to the untold billions of us who have heard or read the parable or all of the above? Here's a story by Jesus who finds himself at the crossroads. He was, in, he was encountering individuals in need. He was traveling with people he, uh, that ha, uh, who had been deemed unrecoverable. And he was confronted by um, significant and influential people questioning the decisions he was making. He found himself in situations where both parties had written the other off. Both sides were culpable. Both sides contributed to the present breakdown in communication and relationships. But he saw that the stakes were too high to do nothing. So, he took a risk. Jesus took a risk. He stepped out in faith without knowing the end result was going to be. But he knew that whatever the outcome, God would stand beside him uh, like a shepherd. 
I call this <clears throat> risky faith. The song calls it reckless faith, right? I call it risky faith. By risky, I don't mean dangerous faith or irresponsible faith. By risky faith, I mean a willingness to operate, operate outside our comfort zone. It would at least include, would it not, operating outside our convenience zone? By faith, I don't necessarily mean a private belief or feeling. By faith, I mean an understanding of our context that compels us to do something. Risky faith involves risky behavior. And if we commit risky behavior together, oh my God, then we, then that is a church that I want to be a part of. A church that embraces everyone, a church that does not treat our environment as an object of abuse, a church that stands up for justice? A church that strives to encourage everyone to be all that they could be in Christ. So sometimes life brings circumstances that demands a faith that is willing to take the risk even when we cannot be certain of the outcome. So let me just end this morning with a simple but I think profound question. What kind of faith do you have? 